I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Welcome to the show. I have been absent for a little bit once again because I've been in the studio. And it has been sort of a, in a remarkable last three months. There's lots of things going on and there's some really good stuff happening with Scene is Forgetting uh, coming up in the future. But because of this, I have been in neglect of some of these podcasts that I recorded uh, a while ago. And you guys deserve to have them out as well as the individuals that I recorded them with. Today's guest is Carl Hendel. It is an appropriate time to put out the podcast because just this last week, he had an opening at Mitchell Innocent Nash in New York. Carl's a really remarkable guy. He is probably, and I say this in the the nicest way possible, he's probably one of the most intense guys you're ever going to meet because he is so focused and has a real intent and purpose with the things that he does in his work. He tackles subject matter that isn't easy to digest sometimes. It is really worth taking a deeper look and delving into some of the video work that, that Carl has been doing, as well as what he's probably more known for, which are the, the drawings. And he's a remarkable draftsman. I really had a wonderful and in-depth conversation with Carl, but I think one of the things that stuck out for me, and I say this sometimes when people come in, because I'm always sort of surprised at how generous and open people are, by far Carl is one of those interviews where he didn't hold anything back and he was willing to talk about just about any aspect of the work, including how an artist survives in a market and has longevity. I just wanted to say thank you, Carl, for taking the time to come into the studio and record the episode. And without further ado, here's Carl. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I always like to preface how I know the people that come on to the show. Uh, I feel very fortunate to actually have you on the show. I've appreciated your work for a while now. I I think you're quite a good artist. Your wife, Emily Mast. Emily Mast, yeah. Yeah, she was on the show as well. And really a pleasure to have a conversation with her. She's so on point. (laughs) (laughs) She really knows her shit. She does. It's it's tough to win an argument with her. Is it? <laughs> uh, she schooled me on performance and just like, really, it was a really incredibly informative conversation. I just felt very fortunate to, to be able to sit with her for as long as we did. And also, just a very nice person. So She, she did ask me to marry her, though. So that, that I'm very lucky. I think she might have told me that. Yeah, no, yeah. seriously? But she's wonderful. I'm extremely lucky. And um, she's a great Do you mother guys... and she's a great artist and she's... Before Wait, she's crazy. It's before like we fun. get before we get into specifics about your work, and I have a lot to talk about with this. Do you find having a significant other who is also an artist? Do you guys talk about the work? I mean, obviously you talk about the work, but how, how does that work for you? What's that dynamic? You mean do we talk about each other's work? Yeah. So if you're making something in the studio, well, she's a performance artist. You produce tangible objects. Yes. So there's a difference in what you actually make, but do you have conversations about how you're going to approach the work or what you're thinking about in terms of scale and composition or like? In terms of having a partner who's an artist, I think both of us had dated other people before who were not artists. And and maybe this isn't so much whether we're artists, it's just whether we're driven because Emily and I work a lot and we... You mean in the studio? Yeah, or, I mean, it, Just might, it might not be in the studio, but, like, you know, she might be working at home, but, like, we both are driven. If, if on Saturday night, this is, I mean, now we have a kid, so it's a little different, but there would never be any kind of recrimination if we were, like, I want to work tonight. I mean, I remember I was dating, dating someone, this is like 10 years ago, and she's like, what are you doing? I was at my studio, and it was, like, maybe 7.30 on Friday night, and I was like, I'm working. And she says, do you want to do something? Do you want to get together? And I said, no, I just want to work. And this, this woman, I was, it was a big deal. Yeah. Like why on Friday night are you working? Well, that would never be an issue with Emily and I, like we want to work all the time. Right. So you understand each other. We understand that drive. We understand the drive to like, we're perfectionists, we're ambitious. 
So we understand that, and I think that kind of respect and understanding for each other's uh, obsession is helpful. So we never really, well, you know, I think we relatively don't feel guilty about how much we work. It, now that we have a kid, it gets a little more dicey. It's tricky, right? You know. Children yeah. complicate everything. Yeah, just just like time. Like we don't, neither of us have enough time for our own work and for each other. When it comes to talking about our work, we do it, maybe not as much as you would think, but when both of us have issues that we have to, um, that, w- that we know the other can help with. Like my night gallery show, I'm, I'm, I'm very bad with color. Are you colorblind or not? Yeah, yeah, I'm are, color right? challenge, let's say. <laughs> in the red, in in the green blues, I kind of can't tell the difference. So, you know, like I might have to ask Emily, does this match? Like does this does this shirt look okay with this cuz I can't tell. But right. it's not like I can't see color like I see that this is yellow. Right. But um she helped me pick the colors for that. She has such a strong understanding of color, like in all of her performance work, mm-hmm. it's very apparent that color play, plays a major role. Yeah. But so in, she's good with color, but then like she asked me questions about like how install things. I'm pretty good about installing in space. Um, spatial considerations, like yes. how to put things together. Yeah. In relationship, in relationship to the viewer, in relationship to the work and the architecture. So she might ask me something about that. Yeah. Um, so we talk through things, but I don't like to, <laughs> we, we had this ongoing thing like many years ago, she'd always want to talk through each of her projects, like as she was considering them, like, I know I think I want to do this now. I think I want to do that. And at some point I was like, I don't want to hear all of the deliberations, every decision you make every night when you've made a decision, I just want to see the end thing. And then we could talk about whether or not we think it was a good project. Is that because how you approach your own work or what? I just don't want every night to be a crit. Right. <laughs> right. No, I understand. Right. But, you got enough of that with your own practice. Yeah, I think so. I, I think, I, th- I think for us, we are not too involved in each other's practice. Right. I mean, some, some artist couples are really kind of overlapping and we're just, I think we keep it pretty separate and we, our lives are kept pretty separate. Interesting. But we do like to see art together and generally we like similar art. You do. You like the same type of work. Yes. I mean, uh, when we do see a fair amount of performance, and I think we generally like video installation type work, really ambitious work, and not we're not that interested in formal work. Were you drawn to performance always or not? I think I'm just drawn to work that has um, high stakes and intensity and is about um, real life and real issues. That turns to, that that tends to be performance often as well because it can go wrong so quickly, or it can disengage with the audience so quickly. I, I, I'm thinking in terms also your video work is challenging mm-hmm. on many levels, but I can see the connection between you wanting to sort of be challenged when you, and how that plays out in your own, your own practice. Emily is a performance artist. We see a lot of it. She likes it, but it's not necessarily my favorite. And uh, I just like work that is ambitious and um, totalizing that makes sense where, where when you walk into a show, the artist has complete control of the situation and you kind of are at, kind of in their world at their mercy. Right. And they control the space. They control. The, Maybe it's a complete thought, right? Like they, they've considered everything that's going into what they're actually producing. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's a total, I'm interested in a totalizing aesthetic. Now that could be, uh, let's say Samara Golden has that as an installation artist, right? Like the whole space, and I love that. But it could also be Bruce Nauman and just having one video. But because it's so all-encompassing, no, nothing else is needed. I guess that was going to be my question as well, is it doesn't need to be installation. And I think one of the crutches that a lot of contemporary artists have is when they're creating, specifically sculptors, when they're creating like a sculptural installation, there's a... God, where did I hear this? There was a conversation... Oh, you know what it was? It was B. Wirtz and John Newman having a conversation in Bomb Magazine. They were talking about how contemporary artists, the the idea of like the the sculpture as as object has changed into the need for sculpture to be installation, where it needs to be all encompassing on a whole level, so that it's it's experiential. Mm-hmm. So that when you walk into a room, you have an experience. You don't just visit the individual object. To me, that's a little bit problematic, but I mean, it's just maybe it's the way it is. No, well, I'm actually, I'm interested in that because I am interested in the object, but 
the object in relationship to the space, in relationship to the viewer, which often leads to a kind of theatrical presentation, which I am guilty of, like a number of my With all your are, installations. Yeah, they're theatrical. And Emily's work is too. And that just means that theatrical space is a non-real space that exists parallel to the real space. So like you can have a theatrical space in a gallery or in a theater that looks just like everyday life, but it's a theatrical space because it's fake. Right. But um, for me, it's interesting to think about a drawing and our physical relationship to the drawing, which occurs in an actual space and how all, all three of those things need to be considered. And I'm not so interested in seeing a bunch of drawings lined up at 60, 60 inches on the wall. It just seems to be like you're as an artist. In frames and... Yeah, I yeah. mean, you're just giving the view, you're just letting go of all these possibilities and you're not taking advantage of the full the full space, the full ability of the human body to like move up and down and turn around. And so recently I've been thinking about... Because I'm trying to make an experience for the viewer. Right, I completely understand. And it makes sense. And seeing your work, you're a multifaceted artist, but what you are known for are these very accomplished drawings. Mm-hmm. The, these large scale and small, I mean, the, the scale is variant, but very well rendered drawings. So the last show at Vielmetter, the you walked into the space and there were some very, very large multi-paper pieces that were sort of, were they single, single pieces of paper or they were multiples, right? Uh, well, there were those, the horses. The, yeah. Those, those girls riding rodeo horses, uh, they were double pieces of paper. Yeah, they're gigantic. What's the scale on those? They were probably, uh, I know they're 103 inches tall by maybe uh, 80, 85 inches and, wide. And they're pinned directly into the wall. Yeah, they're just stapled. They're stapled, the they're yeah, stapled yeah. to the wall, which uh, my wife's a paper conservator, and immediately when I saw that, I was, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> you were in so much trouble. Uh, I've, I've had a few conversations with paper conservators. That just want to kill you? <laughs> <laughs> but the the work is beautiful it's lovely but then also you had uh you, you turn around so if you enter the room you are directly faced with these uh women riding horses in this large scale and you walk into the room and that's what you're immediately attracted to but then if you turn and toward your back as you walked into the space were smaller compositions of, of different things hands mm-hmm. um what were some of the other subjects that were there were some re- repeated uh texts which I call uh, protest drawings. There was uh, names. There was the names of all the American presidents, uh, their first names, just like a bunch of boys' names. And this uh, was a reoccurring theme throughout the exhibition as well, too, presidents. And it was at the time of the, was it after the election? After the election, before the inauguration. The inauguration was like two or three weeks into the show. Yeah, it was like directly thereof. But there was a large uh, drawing of Obama. There was a drawing of Clinton. There was a sound piece with your, was it your, your daughter? It was my daughter saying all the president's names. Yeah, in the room with the Clinton mm-hmm. one, right? More of the point is what I'm trying to talk about and sort of give it a, a description of that installation. It's like what you said. It's not an individual piece lined up in a row. They're compositionally created so that you're walking into an environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that show was the most sort of like toned down installation I've done in a long time. The show was pretty serious and pretty heavy. And now that I have been showing uh, since uh, 2003. You're so, showing in general? You mean like just like, showing? Yeah, like I've been having gallery shows and stuff right. at museums since 2003. So now it's 2017. I don't need to do everything in every show. And I've already made the point numerous times about this relational idea. Like the image needs the image next to it, needs the space between it, get to the next image. And the these kind of things create a kind of sentences. They're like terms in a, in a language and I can uh, say different things with them. So it's all about these relational quality of images. That said, you can take a word and put it by itself and still have a certain type of power. And I felt that with this show, I needed, because of the sensitivity of uh, the way people were feeling after the election and the heaviness of Obama and seeing Clinton and then the video of the rapist that I needed to... Which we will go talk about. We can talk about that. Yeah, of course, we're going to we talk, talk about, about that in a sec. I thought that I would try, even though I don't really believe in this sort of masterpiece model, the singularity you come across, you, you, you look at the rectangle in front of you and it, there's like a world inside of this rectangle. Everything else is not important. And in front of you stands this rectangular masterpiece. That to me, that kind of interaction is not that interesting. It's devoid of something. Maybe it's just old. Maybe it's just old school. Maybe it's just a kind of. You think of, that it's past its prime, maybe. I'm not sure that it is a true 
and complete way of looking at images. And I think that maybe it's, it's just overly artificial. Not that what I'm presenting with these theatrical installations are any less artificial, but maybe they're, the artifice is truer to the way we exhib, uh, you know, exist in the world in general. But it doesn't mean that, that an image by itself, a rectangle, can't have that power. And, and since I, I understand how that works, I can use it at times. So I can put Obama by himself like down a long hallway and use that kind of uh, singularity. The individual kind of, piece in yeah, it. Yeah. And to kind of like have, have moments of just like one big, you know, like uh, drumming. Walking you know, into <laughs> it. Yeah. I, I can do that at times because the next show will be different. But when I first started showing, I would never have done that because I always wanted to have this relational aspect of images where I would never hang everything in a row. Uh, but every now and then I could still do it. I can do it now because I don't need to like accomplish everything in every show and I can be broader. That, that idea of having to do everything in a show, mm -hmm. you think that's a, an aspect of an early artist's career where they feel like they need to like show how much you can do and how thoughtful you are about all these different things? More to the well, point. maybe it's just like you want to put forward what for you is most important and you want to make sure that you're insistent. Or like when I was first showing, I wanted to make sure that what for me was most important was always there. That experience, that experiential thing going into the space or not? That, that, yes, that was important. That was there in the first show, blocking the viewer, making the viewer walk in different directions, making them look up, making them look down, yeah. making them think about the text in their world and how that each of us create our own kind of meaning through the relationships that we have with the text, be the text, yeah. flat things in magazines or what we see on the TV or the songs that we hear or the, the photographs that we save. These are all sort of texts that, that imbue our lives with meaning and how these, these texts, these images are both cultural and personal at the same time. We as human beings create these narratives, these meanings in our lives that, that, that we share culturally and make us part of society, but then they are also quite personal. And in that interaction between the personal, the kind of subjective, and the objective and the cultural is sort of where meaning happens. Well, and I think that's a real struggle in a lot of artwork too, is finding that place where one of the reasons you're going to get somebody to stay in a room and not just walk in, I mean, what you're talking about is getting them to experience the work and stay in a room and look at the work on multiple levels, to walk around a piece, right? We were talking about Anthony Caro a little bit mm -hmm. earlier, the, the idea that Caro would get somebody to walk around an object to view it from all sides, but the way he got them to do that is because he subtly did things to the piece to force you to walk around that object. And you're talking about the same thing, looking up, looking down, looking, you're not going to get everything from a quick view just walking into the room. Well, when, when, I, when I do a show very often, you know, the, the people who go to museums and galleries, there'll be the few people who just come once, but most of the people are repeat viewers, you know, they're sort of like art people. So they oh, might go to yeah. the, they might go to a space a few times a year. Like if you're walking down Chelsea, there's even like people have their path, you know, maybe they start at 23rd street. Right. And they they know the exactly where they're going. Yeah. And they go the same way every time they pop their head in. If there are certain types of viewers, when they look into videos, they just walk, turn around and go back. They walk around the gallery, whether they're counterclockwise walkers or clockwise walkers, yeah. they have a real way. They have a path. Yeah. I think it's very important, and I always try to do something to block that path. Very literally, put something. Oh, in you're the trying way. to like change up. Yeah, because a pattern. You, yeah, because it's like if you walk the same way, you know, every day to work, you're gonna and miss then, something. And then, and then, yeah, and then you, that road's closed. You have to walk a different way, and you notice something differently. So, which could be amazing. It could totally change your life. <laughs> it could be, but if you're going to work and you go a different way, maybe if you're going to an art gallery, I don't know if you're going to change your life, but the idea is just to make people sort of, um, have to become reacquainted with the space that they think they already know. So you put something in front of them, they have to work, walk a different way and they're spatial and sort of sens sensorially dislocated just yeah. a little bit. You put something on the floor, you know, like I'll, I'll put things on the floor, paint the wall. I'm not talking about like going crazy like Jason Rhodes, although I love Jason Rhodes, but there is something you need to do to make people a little disoriented and that helps them experience the work differently. Well, and I think one of those connectors and what I was thinking about was the personal. You were talking about the personal and finding that personal inside of there and being able to have it open-ended enough sometimes so that people can attach themselves to the piece in some way. Mm -hmm. I think is important. And what I was thinking about as well was you're talking about creating an experiential thing or like an environment, but that's wholly different than how people are going to live with the work. Mm -hmm. Possibly. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, yes, people are going to have these pieces framed, sit with them in that row 
in their house or, or, or however they're going to uh, attach themselves to it. So once it's out of your possession mm-hmm. and that work is beyond you, does it matter how, how it's sort of viewed? Like if you're, um, or even a museum for that matter. Yes, it, it is to an extent. The, the primary interest is for any public exhibition. I'm not so interested in where it goes after. And the primary reason to make sure some of it goes somewhere after is so I get paid sometimes. So you can so still I make can, shit. So I can do another show. Yeah. Now, a lot of times I sell uh, drawings in groups. So You do? Yeah, like, a, like sort of like a, a constellation, you know, a group of three or five or seven. So when you're thinking about compositions, are you only putting together thinking about what works for you in the studio or why are you selling them in those compositions? For me, I realized that the relationships between the works, that, that, that the way I make drawings is about constantly making, making, making drawings. And it's about a process of like taking these things in the world, presenting them, but it's about this sort of like another, 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 another. And it's a language, it's a system. Do you feel compelled to like make that volume? Yes. That's like a sickness, but what, we can what, get what? into that. But, but let me answer your question okay, about, yeah, about, about yeah. the groups. It was always about these relationships between these things, and then I was trying to build a language. It's, it's about syntax, right? So I want to present someone with a, like if I'm trying to distribute the work into the world, it's best, or I try to create a complete sentence for someone. So there are museums that have bought, you know, like eight, but it comes as one. It's like one group. And if I'm lucky, I can get a collector to buy those. And then when they're in their house, they can hang them any way they want. But when they're in public, I get to control. Because there's a real language between multiple works. We talked before about Heim Steinbeck and and the relationship between the different objects on the shelves. And, you know, I, as I, I told you, I worked for him. And for me, the most interesting part was the relationships between these objects. And I, I, I think of a similar thing about the relationships between these drawings. Some of them are, 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 are photographic rendered. Some of them are text. Some of them are slogans. Some of them are trompe you know, objects around the studio. But they all have these relationships. And I want to present, uh, I, I want that relationship to stay as the work goes out into the world. Now, that said, I still need to make a living. So... For an art fair, I know I have to give like a single work that's about, you know, four by five feet if right. I want it, you know, like you got to play to the, you got to play to the market sometimes so you can make a living. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not too proud to say that, but still like in the, in the, in shows, I, I break it up so that we have a few single things because the dealer knows they can sell those. And then the groups like those are harder to sell, but if you can find a collector who's really into the work or a museum, then they buy the group. Okay, so we this leads this leads to a bunch of different things. Uh, I had to thank you too for being so honest and sort of open about these conversations because they're they're things that I think about in the studio, and I think they're things that other people think about as well too. One of the questions here was, um, well, I was going to go into why you're compelled to make all those pieces. Yes, that's uh, an interesting one. Okay, and I also want to talk about the market a little bit, but let's go into why you're compelled to make the, all the works, like the volume that you're making. <laughs> I, I mean, there was a period where, I mean, it was just like, I was like trying to make as many drawings as possible. And it was something like about... How long ago? Mm, I mean, I still try to make a lot. I mean, if I make the 22 by 30s, which is my smallest size, everything is serial in size. So which is like, still pretty darn good size for... Yeah, I mean, that's that. It's, it's okay size. But for me, that's a small size. So 22 yeah, by 30. Like, but I think I made like 20 of those in the past couple months. Really? And, yeah, and I've been making a lot of them because they're small, so I can make them myself. Are you doing them for any particular show or exhibition, or are you just making? Uh, no, I'm having a show in September. Um, Whereabouts? Uh, at Mitchell and the Sin Nash. Okay. Um, it's a drawing show with Jay DeFeo, or Jay DeFeo's estate. So it's a DeFeo Handel drawing show. And since it's at the Uptown Gallery, it's like that's a, a great name. <laughs> <laughs> DeFeo Handel. So um, sounds like a buddy cop movie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should we should title yeah. the show that we don't have a title yet. Yeah. Um, no, no. The the, the gallery is relatively small. Her drawings are in like the eleven by fourteen inch size. So I need to make a lot of small drawings. And the way normally I do shows is I'll make a ton of work and then sort of edit to figure out gotcha. what, what I'm trying to say. What do you do with the extra stuff? Does it go in the archive? Uh, they, they could go to future shows. Yeah. Because I like to do this thing where like I don't really believe in, in new work. You or don't? This idea of, no, I don't really believe in progress or like <laughs> development. 
you know, because I, I think it's so, so false. Like when you do art history and, and I remember I used to have, I had a modernist art history professor who was fantastic. Kermit Champa was his name. What a great name. And that he, is a great name. He was a Greenbergian. He was one of Greenberg students and he, you know, he did the modernist sort of thing where like he would talk about an, uh, an early Kandinsky and how he's figuring it out, but and this is progression. not an, an progression. And this is the great period, the high period, the great Kandinsky, so some is less great than Rothko, the other. and then yeah. the lesser, like the later Pollocks, the Which lesser is Pollocks. And I don't really think, I think that's just sort of something that we just put on, to, you know, it's just made up. Um, and we do it with music, we do it with poetry. And I think of my work more as like there's a core, something that I was interested in probably since I was like three years old, but definitely since I started showing, there were some central things that I was interested in and then I'm trying to build outward. So I'll do a show that has work. I mean, mostly it's new work because the old work is gone, but um, meaning it's, it's probably sold somewhere in a collection somewhere, but like I'll do a show with new work, but if there's a piece I made from 2007 that fits, I'll just show it. Okay, but here's the, this, where, this is where I would see the difference being. Uh, between you and an, an, a younger artist. You're an artist who has produced a bunch of shows. Mm-hmm. You know where you're at within your own work, right? So I, I feel like I know where I'm at within my own work too. I'm producing a certain type of work and I'm, I haven't changed too much, but I picked a piece up the other day from somebody that I made like three years ago mm-hmm. and I can see the moves within that piece that I would correct now because I've gone through a process of figuring out how how to make myself a better sculptor because I'm three years into it further on. There are advances in how you produce the work at a certain level that I think matter and you can sort of see sometimes. Now, that being said, I think it's completely acceptable to go back and use some of that older stuff to go back into the pieces. But I think you particularly have a handle on where you need to be within your work and you have a certain level of producing that makes it different than from a lot of artists. Well, I've gotten better at drawing. Like I'm, 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 I'm cause you do it all the time. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I mean, I, I, I used to like have trouble doing, uh, dust and dirt. Now I'm pretty good at that. So I've gotten some better at some technical stuff if I want to do rendering. But the way that I, I, I've used the same size paper for 17 years, the same pencils, the same materials. And I remember all, all, all the way back in 2000, I was sort of like, oh, I'm building a language here. Yeah. And even though some of the earlier ones, maybe the drawing was not quite as good or the composition didn't, you know, wasn't as, maybe I got a little better at that. I don't know. But yeah. I still feel that like I would make like... They're all talking to each other. Yes. And they, like there was these New Yorker cartoons that I made in 2003, 2004. And I just like made like 30 New Yorker cartoons. I just redrew New Yorkers. And maybe that's kind of a simple idea, but if I have a show in September and I'm like, they could totally go like into it. It, it makes yeah. sense. I just put it in there, and it's like it's like the way you build a language. You build it from the center out. You don't build it as a line. It's not a linear way of languages aren't built that way. They're built out. So the earlier terms still hold. They still matter because you built all the other words around the earlier terms. So do you have a archive? How do you know what works you have? Because you're producing so much work and volume. How do you go back three years and know what do you regularly go through? I mean, through? I don't produce that much work. I have two assistants. Like, it's not Sterling Ruby. Like, he produces a lot of work. But I also don't sell as much as him, so I still have a lot of it. Uh, I have a database, you know. But you do you regularly go back into it and take a look at what you've done in the past? Yeah, well, well, one of the reasons I started making drawings was that they're easier to store. You know, when I was an undergrad, I was doing a lot of different things and photos and paintings and videos, all sorts of things. But drawings are great until you frame them. They're very storable. Right. You know, the small flat ones, files, you can yeah. go to flat files and the bigger ones I can roll, I can put them in a big pile and roll them up. So I look back through the flat files and I just look, I have these sort of shelves with rolls in them and I look at labels and I make, oh, I have this one. Maybe this makes sense. Right. Let's go into a bit. When we were in the studio. We still didn't get to the obsession of why I keep making. We didn't. Oh my God. Let's finish that. So why are you making the volumes of. I might've been scared I was going to die. What? Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I was making the most work when I was drinking the most and taking the most drugs. And And you don't drink anymore. No, but there still is... You're sober completely. I'm sober completely, yeah. I've been sober completely since 2008. I think there might have been something there, but I... I, I, Were you self-destructive or... Mm, Well, obviously, anybody who I wasn't (laughs) 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 self-constructive. I think there is something about wanting to leave something around and maybe if you can't... You know, if you can't leave a masterpiece, you should leave like a thousand almost masterpieces. Be prolific. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, in a way, 
I don't think I have control, like aware that I'm more of a workmanlike artist and more an artist artist and not so much like a, you know, a genius masterpiece artist. I'm not Bruna, Bruce Nauman, never will be. Like he's just at a different level, but I can work really hard. Right. And there's some, and I know that that really Yeah, but that count. matters. Yeah, that does matter. And there's something about Hugely. making a lot of work. It sort of shows that you've worked hard although it's not the same right I no mean, I, I think it definitely shows when you work hard I think we, you can tell when an artist hasn't been in the studio one of the biggest lessons I think I ever learned was just that I make better work when I'm in the studio all the time and showing that that work and how often you're in there actually making well because it comes down I, I talk about this all the time but I don't know if this is for you but I have to make a bunch of stuff that probably doesn't work as well to get to the stuff that really works well. And if I don't produce that stuff that isn't quite as good that I'm not going to probably show to the public, I can't get to the really good shit. Well, I think it's not the best idea to be overly critical or analytical when you're actually in the studio working. Yeah, yeah. You have to save that for like after the show and you look and be like, what moves did I do right and wrong? But when you're actually just making it, you, you can't be judging yourself. So I just work, work, work. And then like the walls in my studio get filled up. And then when it's all filled up, we do a round of like photographing everything, put it in the flat files, roll everything up, and then fill up the walls again. I think that's really smart. It's a really good piece of advice for for any artist is not be critical of your just make. Yeah, just make, make, make as much work as you possibly can. That's a great. It, I mean, it depends the kind of like I'm particularly uh, nervous, fearful, anxiety ridden, uh, self critical person. So I don't. I don't <laughs> I don't, it's not like I have a shortage of that. So I just try to, but when I'm in my studio, generally I have uh, enough confidence to just go. And then like when I can't sleep at night, I can doubt. Going into, we were talking a bit about market. I think the market thing is important because it, it's important for people just in the sense of talking about like the realities of like what happens to an artist's career and where you're at. So when we were in the studio, you were brutally honest and you were talking about how, was it out of grad school where you were like selling everything mm -hmm. that came out of the studio, right? Not everything, but a lot. A lot. Yeah. And then slows down eventually sometimes for some artists. What mm -hmm. do you think, by the way, you still sell a lot. So, yes. <laughs> like, so Not a lot. I mean, I mean, I don't know. You make, a, you make a living, yes. you have a studio, you have assistants, yes. you, you can survive off of it, which yes. is rare. You specifically said there is a change in that volume from where you were previously to where you are now. What do you think the factors are in that? Well, there's not enough people buying art just because they like it to support all of the artists and all the galleries in the world. So the, so people are buying art for reasons outside of, why oh, that looks good, I'd like it. And this is also includes these, you know, like the rebel people who uh, buy art because they like it, but they have a museum. There's not enough people who have museums and houses just to buy art that they like it. So there's some speculation there. Yes, that has to yeah. be. And it also includes more than just speculation. It's also like people who are rich, who buy a second house and know that they should have real art on the wall so they have an art advisor. Space, yeah. And the art advisor buys what's in that year. So when I first started showing, which was in 2003, I mean, I think the market has, and speculation has probably always played a part in, in, in the art world. It always will, yeah. Yeah, and it has for hundreds of years. But uh, I think in the 2000s, it was the, it, it started, it, it reached a new level. It was pretty intense. Yeah, I think it's reached a higher level since then. But at the time, it was, it was a new level. It was the beginning of the art fairs. I mean, I remember my dealer at the time, Anna Helling, she said, we're going to do this thing in Miami and we're going to put our, our this going to be in a shipping crate on the beach. And I was like, what the hell? That sounds so stupid. Like, sounds horrible. Yeah, like, well, who wants to look at art inside a shipping crate? Are you going to build walls in there? She's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And she said, I need five works. And gave her five works, and they all sold. And the people buying, I mean, the art was cheap. And I probably, how do I say this? I think I'm a good artist, but at the time, who knew if I was going to ever be anything more than just good enough? I mean, I was good enough at the time. Like, I had the right CV. I went to, I had, I went to the right programs. I was... But who knew you were going to stay good? No one, and no Long one still term. knows because it's still right. the beginning. But what um, speculators or interior decorators look for is a sort of consensus, and I had enough checks by my name that I had the consensus. I just came out of UCLA. I went to the Whitney program. I, I went to Brown. I was clearly enough good enough. You had enough. pedigree. Yes, I had a pedigree. So if, you're, if it's like an IPO, 
you want to buy it. And if it looks like, you know, if, if it's a stock IPO. You're and, a solid investment at I, the time. You appear looked, to be. I looked like other investments that were solid that panned out, but these people were buying all of the young artists. Right. And it was relatively cheap. I mean, for me, you know, it, it, young art is cheaper than old right. art. Yeah, yeah, So. Um, Get in on the ground floor. So a lot of people bought it. I mean, this wasn't happening to all my friends, but some of my other friends were having similar experiences. And I thought that meant that I must be really good. But in retrospect, I realized I was just right place, right time, and good enough. How long did it take you to figure that out? Probably in the 2010, 11, 12. <laughs> after I you stopped drinking? <laughs> after I stopped drinking. <laughs> after I stopped snorting cocaine very often. I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, it's so sad. Jesus. No, actually, I mean, I, I stopped drinking while that was going on. So I was, I was still, still doing okay. But that, what, what happened, the, the market crashed, you know, the recession happened yeah. in 2007, 2008, 2009. So I graduated kind of, in 07 that's in, yeah, from grad school. In inauspicious time. It was terrible. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but actually, you know, things actually continued to be okay, but things slowed down. At, at some point, um, I mean, I'm really starting to realize now what has happened where collectors, good collectors will come in to see my shows and be like, Carl, this is great. You know, uh, this is the best show you've ever done. So powerful. They're not going to buy anything because they have one. They They've bought, already they bought one in 2004. Or a museum. You know, a lot of the museums in the United States have my work. So they're not going to buy another one. Or, I mean, maybe someone gives one and they'll take it. Right. So that's just, that. that's a recognition that I made clear where someone could say, a curator can say, uh, this is a great show. We love it. Uh, maybe we can bring our museum group by. So what do you, what do you, I guess as an artist. So now I'm left with people who that's buy what my I mean. work. Like, yeah. Speculators don't don't want to necessarily buy it because the price um, points aren't going to jump. Yeah, they've sort of been the same prices for a number of years. People still buy it because it's they I'm, I'm be a good artist. It. Yeah, they and like the they work. like it. So I have to get by on sort of I guess who really should be buying art, which is people who like it, and it might be people with private museums. It might still be a museum here and there. I still sell some stuff to museums, but they're generally people who are like, "This is good work. We're buying it because we like it." Right. Let's see. One of the things that you mentioned in this conversation as well was if you had to tell somebody, if you were looking back and they were in that same position, is don't turn down stuff or don't be so uh, uppity <laughs> about your or pretentious about your opportunities when they sort of arise and come to you. Yeah, I mean, I do see that in some young artists. Yeah, they think like after one or two shows, they think they're too good for other stuff. They're too good to. Well, when the opportunities come, they turn them down because they're waiting for the next thing. Yeah, and that next thing might never come. Yeah. I think it's really important as an artist to be sort of malleable and humble. I did a show, I show with this little gallery in Zurich called Barbara Seiler. It's a very nice lady, but like a tiny gallery. And, uh, have you showed there a while? Uh, no, I just did one show there. Okay. And it's basically just her and an intern. And I definitely showed at some bigger places, some, some bigger galleries that had big budgets, but she had a very small budget and the whole budget for everything was five grand for my ticket, for the Airbnb. Oh my God. For the for the shipping, crating, shipping, yeah, and how did you? That's incredible. But that's, I looked at it as a challenge, yeah, and I was like, I, I can do that, and I think that artists should be able to do like a good artist can do a show for five grand or fifty grand. Yeah, you're right, and and, and, and then and do a the solid show. Yeah, I think it was a solid show, and like we framed just like three things. Maybe we should sent one thing via FedEx that I had my framer build one crate, so one crate went, and the rest I brought on the plane, uh, and I do that quite often. I don't mind doing it. And then I installed it myself and I like painted some stuff and I built all those cardboard pedestals and I pinned everything up. And I think the show is one of my best installations and That's did cool. the whole thing for 5,000. And I liked it. I like installing my own work and I, I, I don't, really particularly like standing there and telling like two art installers like up, down, left. No, that sucks. So I, and then in New York, my, gallery has more means so like they'll frame more stuff but the difference between framing and not framing i could handle doing a show with no framing going on the plane right if you frame it, it it's because they want to yeah but and some uh, of that i stuff. mean a frame there, there there's two reasons to frame something there's for protection and then there's like the meaning of the frame that it delineates it says this is outside this is inside what's inside these borders means something what's outside is outside i'm not interested so much in the first one the protection the collector can pay for that if they sell it. If the gallery really wants to be fancy, they can do it and they can pay for it. I'm not against it, but I don't really care so much about the protective quality, but I am interested in sort of the framing, the delineation quality of a frame. And right. with my shape frames, I really played with that. 
So, but you can do that by painting a border around it or making a frame out of cardboard or MDF. And I make a lot of MDF frames, which are just ripped MDF screwed right. to the wall. And I've delineated a border and an MDF frame costs $20. I, I like problem solving. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about problem solving, let's transition into the video work because the video work is very complex. Mm-hmm. I would imagine... I've done a little video work myself, but I, I can imagine producing this work was not easy. And a lot of it is very personal. Mm-hmm. So the first piece I wanted to talk about, because I think it leads into the second work, is questions for my father, which was 2011. Do you want to explain what this piece is? Okay, well, that started, I made a drawing called Questions for My Father, I think in 2007. And that was questions, I had an um, uneasy relationship with my father. And these started, these were questions that I wanted to ask him. And these came about when I... Was he in the house when you grew up or not? He was in the house. Okay. I mean, he wasn't emotionally in the house, but he was physically in the <laughs> <laughs> He was emotionally distant. He wasn't a bad father. He, he provided for everything, but he wasn't really very uh, emotionally connected. And then when my mother died, he remarried this crazy lady. And How old were you when your mom died? Uh, 18, 19, somewhere around. So you were right getting out of high school. I was in college. I was just in the beginning of college. But she had cancer. She, she got cancer when I was like 12 or 13. So like my so whole she was dealing with the whole, yeah. so the entire childhood you were dealing with this. Yeah, yeah. This, this was probably like my, uh, my major trauma, I would say. My, my mother sort of slowly dying as I was growing. And, and having to deal with your dad. At the you same, know, and he was probably was he distant because she was dying. He was distant because of his the way his brain works. It wasn't because he didn't love him. us. He he has Aspergers, so he's like really kind of like obsessive about like lawnmowers or whatever thing that he's fixing at the time. But he didn't really know how to emotionally. He doesn't know how to access his emotions. He doesn't have a really he doesn't good have a connecting point. Yeah, to have empathy. Uh, and self-reflection. Like he can't look at himself and say, why did I do this? It's just... It's tough a for little, a kid. Little, yeah. So he's a little robotic. But uh, I mean, now I have a relatively good relationship with him, except I've had to accept him for who he is. But then there was a period, I was about 30, let's say, and I had been sober a while and I was thinking about like, okay, now that I'm, I guess, a man, uh, although I still feel like a child now, but like I am a man and, you know, I'm like, buying a house and I, there's, or I'm thinking about what I want with my life or what I value, what I care about. They're questions I have that I want to ask my father about. And at the time he was still married to this crazy lady and he wouldn't talk to me and I couldn't ask him. And these were questions Wait, about, because of her. Yeah. Yeah. She like didn't want him talking to me and my sister. That is so intense. Yeah. But she died uh, two, three years ago and now I have a relationship with him because she died. Yeah. Dear Lord. Yeah. She died and, it's uh, it's a horrible thing to say, but like it's her, good... her dying made my life better. That's crazy. Yeah. So the questions, it was just a text piece. It might, I think it's probably the drawing I like best of any of my drawings. You showed me the drawing. The drawing's beautiful. Yeah. And it's just text, just in Times font. And it says like, how did you get out of going to Vietnam? Did you ever shoot your pants? Uh, like really personal, but personal, like also sort of funny and sort of... Yeah, like what did you think about Martin Luther King? Did you ever march on anything? Things about like, did you ever wish you did something different with your life? So uh, were all these questions, they were like things obviously you wanted to ask him, but they were, were they all things that you didn't have an opportunity to ask yeah, him at the yeah. time? I mean, I really didn't know how he didn't go to Vietnam. I didn't know when he knew he was in love. I didn't know... You know, there's a lot of things. You know, did he ever get someone pregnant and have to uh, have the woman get an abortion? But these are all things too. Like I wouldn't know that about my father. So it's an well, interesting. Well, you see in my video work that I like to get into. Like I like to get into heavy stuff. You're super intense. Yeah, you're sort of an intense dude anyway. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the video came directly. But these out are of important this. questions. They're that, super. That, you know, in your life, the most important you. things, and the, in your in the way that that sort of politics and money and love all mix up together to form who you are. And then if you're a introspective person, you wonder about these things because it all comes from your parents. Well, I think even, even more so if you've been devoid of that contact with your father and you've always had sort of a, a distant sort of relationship with that individual, those questions are even more relevant because you don't have like the connecting points are so few that I think, and I guess when I was saying like, I wouldn't know that about my father, hmm. I had different connecting points, right? Well, I mean, it, it's, it depends. Like, I, I think the, the, in the video, because now we'll, 
lead to the video, a lot of the guys actually did have good relationships with their fathers, but didn't have the types of relationships where they can talk about this stuff. But they wanted to talk about it because there's a generation of, at least my generation, has a different type of man than our father's generation. I'm 40 now. Yeah, I'm going to be 40 this month. So let's set up the video. Okay. The video is a bunch of different men. Mm -hmm. They'll ask a question as you stated. Yeah, so what so what happened is a friend of mine saw this drawing in New York and said did you ever think about turning this into the video into a, a a film or a video and I said yeah, I sort of have but I, I don't really know how to do that and he is a filmmaker he's like well, I know how to do that, let's do it. So we took a very simple idea that I wrote these questions to my father. Like these were questions I really wanted to find out about him. Like where did he get his values from? Where did he get his belief systems from? And how did you make these choices in life? And then I asked a bunch of other men, each of us, me and my friend, uh, Petter, who I made the film with, Petter Ringboom, uh, who's a filmmaker in New York. He um, asked about five or six of his friends, and I asked five or six of my friends, and they were all people who lived in New York or L.A. who were in there, like, from 30 to 40, who we would consider self-reflective, introspective, thoughtful men. Thoughtful people. Thoughtful people. Thoughtful men. They were all men. Different races, uh, straight and gay, but all kind of creative, artsy people who I, we would say sensitive, kind of thoughtful people. Some of them whose fathers left them, some of them whose fathers died, some of them whose fathers uh, were just sort of distant like mine, and some of them who had really good relationships with their fathers, but didn't they didn't have the emotional, their fathers weren't emotionally available to answer these questions about like, they couldn't say to their dad like, um, did you ever feel like a failure? Did you ever think about leaving me and mom? A couple of the questions I wrote these down like, when do you masturbate? <laughs> why, why are you attracted to your, my mother? Uh, why are you a slob? Did you think about leaving us? Yeah. But, but so it, it's such so a each broad of, range. Each of the men asked these questions. I said, okay. They were their own questions. Yeah. I said, this is what I wrote to my dad. Ask your dad the questions you want to ask how many? Him. How many questions did each person have? Maybe 15 to 50. Okay. And then I helped them edit them into a what, where, why format because I wanted it to sort of be clean. Yeah. And then we filmed them. Pretty good camera system, a red camera. Super clean. Know. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's beautifully and, shot. And we rented a studio and each of the guys came in. Uh, we had a producer to help us line everything up and we uh, fed them the lines. So like I would work with one of the guys and I would just say it and they would repeat it and they repeat it over So it's over. clean. You get exactly mm-hmm. what you need out of it. Yeah. And then the way I edited it, which is the way I edit my shows, was I took all these things, I put them on note cards, and I saw where they flow into each other. Because you'll notice in the film... They talk about the same things. Yeah, and they flow. So they'll flow from sex to uh, mom, mom to dating, dating, and then it can get into money. So you can go, and I'm very interested in where these things It tells a story, right? Well, you end up telling the story yeah. about each of these guys' lives. Yeah, well, and it, it follows a narrative. You can in a in, way in a weird way. Yeah. It's like it was easy to watch just I rewatched it again today. It was easy to watch. It wasn't it didn't feel like I was doing because they'll they'll ask that question and then it cuts to the next person mm-hmm. right away. But it didn't I didn't lose interest in that conversation. And yeah, so you do kind of like get interested in each of these guys' lives, but I think it tells an overall narrative about a certain type of man in the 21st century right. and how this type of masculinity is different than our father's masculinity. And the fathers are all absent, but we're talking to the absent fathers. So we talked about this in the studio and that that question of masculinity, but it also is post-feminist masculinity. Yeah. Right. So do you, do you think it's of an age? Like it's a certain type of person coming up in a, a different environment. That's what it comes from. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the men in the video, I mean, they were all educated and probably some of them like were in like feminist theory classes, but some of them were not. But I think they all grow up in certain, I don't know if they all grow up in places that maybe we would call post-feminist or, uh, but if you live in New York or LA and have for a while, you might have a different view on you know, on, on gender roles than if you were to live in a different country or a different part of the country. So by selecting these individuals that you quote unquote were like sensitive, were you trying to project a way for an individual to be? No, I'm not, I'm not saying Prescribing that. to a certain sense of masculinity? No, actually it was more, I mean, I should say that 
the reason that I could ask these questions about masculinity is probably because I like I was one of Mary Kelly's students and because of feminist work that I'm aware of, feminist work from the 70s that started to ask questions about the nature of motherhood and femininity and what it means to be a woman, the natural extrapolation is what it means to be a man. That gave me the tools to talk about this. Have a conversation. Yeah, or to have the language or, yeah. or to think about it. I don't it. think and very so, many people do. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I let me rephrase that. I think there is a limited subset of individuals within the art world that want to have that conversation or be a participant in that conversation all the time. Well, I think that there are not enough men who are asking this question. and it's, I would agree. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's sort of like racism is not a problem for black people. It is a problem for white people. It's a white people's problem. Sexism, and therefore sexism, is not uh, a women's problem. It's a man's problem. We, right. are, we are the sexists. Right. It is our problem. We have to fix it. But if there's nobody there willing to do it. Well, you know, it's, a, it's an odd thing. You see gender discussed a lot in art, but it's not so much discussed by men. Right. Uh, you see race discussed a lot by, in art, but it's not so much discussed by white people. That's a problem. I don't know. I just, I, I, I don't understand why when we talk about masculinity in art, we think of like Richard Prince or Jeff Koons when they're just, ridiculous macho dudes. Well, they're one, they're one completely opposite and they're one end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. When, and, and I'm finding that the other end of the spectrum, there's not, it's, it, it's not well inhabited. Right. <laughs> it's not very, at least that voice isn't very loud. No. And then I think when I go to, you know, I try to make the art that I don't see. Like if I go to see shows and I'm not seeing this talked about, then I need to make the work to, that, that fills that space because it's not being talked about. So that's where this came from. Yeah, well, I, th I think that probably that, that sort of more intense video stuff started happening in 2011, and I continued it, where I felt that the drawings I was doing was, it, it wasn't, I just couldn't get to the place through the drawings. Even though the questions from my father started as a drawing, I just couldn't get to that level of intensity and that, and that, uh, that I needed, so I had to start making the videos. So can we talk about the next piece, the yes. next video piece? So this piece is called J? Yes. I also made a video in between called Why Have Children, which you didn't see, um, and that was about why people have children when we certainly don't need to anymore in terms of survival of the species. Like there's enough people. So I started to think from the position of it's happened with our generation in the Western world where children is a lifestyle choice. It's not a biological need. Yeah, right. And I remember, I mean, I asked my, I, in questions from my father, there was a question that I asked my dad, why did you decide to have children? And I finally asked him that question. And his answer was, I don't know. That's just what people did then. Right. Well, that's I'm, an incomplete answer, but that is probably an honest answer. I, I got my, I married my first wife at 21. I'm from Iowa. I mean, that's just what you did. Wow. Divorced once, you know, but I mean, it's just, that's what the norm was. Yeah. So something has changed in certain parts of Western society where you don't need to get married. It's perfectly fine not to, perfectly fine to not have children. But so now it's a choice. I don't want to make work that's, shows the, you know, that's uh, representing everyone or like everyone in society or the world. It was just about these people who lived, that one was about people who lived in LA because that's who I cast in it and just about why they did or didn't want to have children. So anyway, let's get to Jay. It's a tough piece. Like you watch that thing and it's intense. So explain what Jay is. This was at your, by the way, this was shown at Veal Matter yeah. with the, the show of all the, the political narrative. Yeah, well, you know, there was a drawing of... There, there was uh, mixed was stuff, a, yes. Yeah, but there was a lot of politics, and there was bodies in that show, and there was it ended with Hillary Clinton, just a big drawing, a giant drawing of Hillary Clinton, uh, and my daughter's voice saying all these men's names. Right, so, and then the video... The men's names were all the presidents. Right. Just their first colloquial sort of names, like Bill, James. And then the video, if you walked into the room, and it did have one of these, you know kind of warnings the gallery would you know we were careful about having these warnings like this video this piece in this room discusses uh has its graphic sexual content actually it wasn't graphic it was uh the video itself was super close-ups of a six-year-old uh white guy's body and you could never really get see you never get a body. full yeah. picture of his face you yeah. never got like individual it was just super close up you see his hair you'd see an eye yeah 
not enough to actually tell who that individual was yeah. specifically if you saw them in the room. It, I mean, you'd have to walk, watch it pretty closely and then like walk down the street and maybe you would notice him the next day, but probably not, not that much later. Uh, but really investigating his body. And this man was a uh, convicted rapist and he had been in prison for seven years. Uh, I think he had about another year that he was in jail and uh, he's now out, he's on parole, he's in therapy. And then in the room next to the, the video, there was this 80 page interview I did with him, which just, I asked him all sorts of questions, like pretty tough. I mean, Suzanne, the gallery, she thought that maybe it was too tough on him, but it was very important for me not really? to be. Yeah, to be. I mean, I had to. It was very hard to draw the line between. What, what do you consider tough? I mean, I'm just grilling him. Like, why would you do this? Why, you know, like, what's going through your mind? Like, who the fuck do you think you are type shit? Or no, like, so what? Just straight like, questions. Like, we, the, the question started with his childhood, where he grew up, what kind of father he had, what kind of mother he had. Uh, what he what he was to try, like. try to figure out his background to figure out why he did these things or what um, or just to give paint a picture of who he was. Uh, it was both. Okay, both. You know, it, it went through his life. We talk about his childhood, some traumatic things that happened to him, uh, his father dying. He was a drug addict, an alcoholic. He was raped as a child by a man in his church. We talked about that a little bit about his anger with that, and then uh, we talk about the night he raped this woman. Like in pretty, uh, I wouldn't say like sexually explicit detail, but just detail, emotional detail. Did you regret what you did? Did you think about her? Do you think about her now? Do you wish you could apologize? All this was in there. And then what happened to him when he was in prison and the therapy that he's going through now. And it's all sort of just um, in an interview with written words. So one of the things you had spoken to me about this before is that you didn't want to, to retry him. It wasn't about having a second trial to convict him again for the offense that he was already convicted of. It was how to humanize and create vulnerability for an individual. And how can you feel that way about somebody who has committed this act? Right. There's a dual thing that happens when you film someone naked. He is vulnerable, but he is also subject to me taking advantage of him and objectifying him. So there is a violence in the photographer or the filmmaker telling someone, okay, take your clothes off now. I'm going to record you naked. You're violating them in a sense. But in, in doing that, you are enabling an empathy from the viewer. So people see this and they cannot get beyond the fact that this man who did a horrible thing, we know this, is a human being. His humanness is so clear. Uh, you see every, you see his wrinkles, you see his, I mean, he's six years old, so he's got like some sort of scars of being uh, around. Well, you, you have it twofold, right? So like you haven't just painted a picture through a visual context, you've actually had the conversation too, so that if you want to actually learn about this individual, you can sit down and read about the individual as well. So this could be problematic in a bunch of different ways. How did you, when you approach this, what steps did you take to make sure that you were clear about what the intent was going to be when you were producing it and that it wasn't making the victim feel re-victimized or, you know what I mean? You don't know his name, so you wouldn't know where he grew up. You wouldn't know where this crime took place. You wouldn't know any every name, because he mentioned specific names. He even mentioned the woman's name, but it, that's redacted. Now, this stuff is public record, so there's, you a, find it if you there's a lot to. of stuff you could actually find because we had access to his police records. You say we, who helped you? I had a producer. Um, it was important that I had a female producer. That's and, what I wondered. Yeah, and uh, I found her because I have a friend who actually produced my questions for my father film who put me in touch with this online group she has with other producers who do documentary. And uh, this producer that I found, and I can't say her name, everyone who worked on it, I said I, I would protect their anonymity. Although a couple of people didn't really care. They were like, nah, you know. I'll take the credit, but I thought it would just be better just in case really not so much that this guy would have any kind of retribution or like want to get retribution, but that there might be people outside so offended by the work that they would like attack those people. Yeah. Like how could you work on this project? But the producer had done work with people in the prison system before and had been raped and had been thinking about doing a film about trying to confront her rapist so she had her own personal interest in working on this. She um, wanted to make yeah, she had something th- similar to this. Yeah, or she's, she might still make it, um, but this is, it would just be a way for her to like 
make a little money, you know, paid her as the producer. But also and, to like, yeah, and work use her through skills. some of the, and work some through some of the issues she was thinking about already. Yeah, but mostly she had some experience working with people in prison, so she knew how to navigate better than I did because we had to work through a number. She had to make a number of different calls through various to get it approved and okay. Well, to find the guy, yeah, was not that easy. I mean, that was really the hard part. The hard part was finding someone willing. Once that, there wasn't really that much. Why do you think he was willing to do it? His therapist realized that what we were trying to do was talk about something that's un, that, that people can't talk about. That we have just now in the past few years, I mean, I, I have known women who have been raped. I have known women and men who have been raped and sexually assaulted. It's very hard to talk about, but now there are people who are willing to talk about it. Think about what happens with Bill Cosby. Now the women come forward, but 20 or 30 years ago, they couldn't say anything. Right. So this is fantastic that people are talking about it, but we are saying the victim is the one who has to talk about it. And I was thinking about how do we heal, how do we move beyond this, and thinking about some of the other atrocities that humans do to each other and how do you heal from that. Thinking about after apartheid, how in South Africa they had this, what was it called, uh, Peace and Reconciliation Committee, something, Reconciliation Committees, where they would have the people who committed these atrocities went on TV and basically said everything they did out in the open, but they weren't punished. The punishment was the honesty. Well, they, they just did that with FARC too, I think, right? Where FARC, they actually had the reconciliation where they actually, the members of FARC met the victims' families and had, they said it was incredibly therapeutic and helped the families get some closure on. Well, this is a kind of thing that I think for people to move on or, or have a discourse, you have to have both the, the perpetrator and the victim speak. Uh, at least that's the way I see it. And I think about Nazi war crimes tribunals where like Eichmann's saying what he did. You have to like record it and say this happened. And I felt that any time that rape is portrayed in media, it's always mm, salacious. It's like, you know, SVU, Special Victims Unit, and it's always sexualized that's just horrible for us as a culture to deal with rape and sexual assault voices of not just victims but perpetrators should be heard even as there are people right now who might listen to this who'd be like no there's never a point for rapists ever to have a voice and i was very uh, aware of that and that's actually why I, i i i wanted to have him a sort of voice but i couldn't actually go so far as to let him speak. Right. So I just have his the transcript because I thought about having him speak and it, it was just, I couldn't do it. It's too much. I couldn't go that far. Nevertheless, it's a still, it's a similar process that I, I felt like it, it, it would add something. What was the feedback? It would you, enable people to talk about something. What was the feedback you got off that, that piece in the show? Some people found it really powerful was, and, and moving and I think some people couldn't even enter it. So it was, and it might have actually been a little because I, I think you would agree that for like if I told you I made a video of a naked rapist, you'd be like, oh my god, like it's going to cause all this stir. But it was actually very contemplative and slow and quiet. It's super slow. It's super quiet. It's yeah. very slow. It's not. I made that point because I didn't want it's, it. Well, to it's be, not the SVU thing, yeah. right? And I, I really didn't want to. It's very thoughtful. Like it's very well considered. And, and maybe that was almost its fault because it was so kind of quiet that people had to take the time to, to like a lot of people didn't read through that and didn't even know what they saw, you know. And then when they read the the wall text or whatever, yeah, they didn't even read you're that. Right. They just think it's a video of an older man, so it's about aging. I mean, it was important that it was in that show because that was the only representation of a white guy, and in a way, he's standing in for so Trump. So what? Oh Jesus! Right. Absolutely. I mean, the older white body who is a sexual predator. God, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Holy moly. That's intense. We, we, got, we got somewhere intense. Yeah. No, well, the whole thing. But looking at this and doing a piece that is this loaded. I think that there are a lot of viewers who when they go, I mean, it's a very hard thing to make videos and show them with objects or you know, things that require light. It's just technically difficult yeah, it's to terrible. have. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, they require a different kind of time frame. So a viewer looking at an, 
an object in full light can decide how long they want to look at each. But when it's a time-based thing, you're making that decision. I didn't even go into the room during the opening because it's not the thing I want to see. Yeah, when because you want to be opening. in the light talking to your friends. And we even talked about, should we turn it off during the opening? Is this even appropriate? I think when I showed questions for my father, I showed it once in New York. That was the only thing in the gallery. And then that had a better response. Than when it I worked out well because it, you could focus your yeah, attention Yeah, and then it. like the people who didn't want to watch a video, which is a lot of people. I mean, I was in the gallery a couple of times during the show and you'd see heads walk in, they see a dark room and projection, they walk out. They're just people who- They know not, what they're getting. Yeah. And they're not going to do it. But then other people, they come in and they're going to stay. I think if I show this work again, or if I have the opportunity, it would make sense to just show it by itself. And instead of having the wall text in a binder, I would have it just pinned up to the wall maybe in the room next to it, because I think it was hard for more than three people at a time to flip through it. As long as I think I had the piece by itself, people would be able to just take the time to watch that. And I, and I, I, I still don't know how to figure out how to show videos and objects in the same space. I could figure out the light and like how to close off a space. That I could figure out, but the time frame, it, it, it requires a viewer to have a split Kind of like a viewer. It's a different monster. Yeah, yeah, it's a totally different type of monster. So, so that's so that's just a problem. But you know, there's only so many shows I have, so I got to figure. It out. <laughs> Still, I tried to cram too much in there. I feel like we did a pretty good job talking about the body of work. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being so open about the conversation, but uh, and taking the time to actually have it as well. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice, nice talking to you. And um, Carl, thanks so much to talk for coming about the videos. Yeah. All right. Thank you.